0: When was the last time that you were startled or when you were shocked? Uh, this past uh, May, my family and I, we got to go to Florida and we spent some time at this beach called Indian Rocks Beach, which is off the Gulf Coast of Florida. And one beautiful, sunny Florida afternoon, Joseph and I were playing catch. We had this water ball and we were playing catch in the ocean. I mean, come on, that's awesome, right? Playing catch in the ocean. And we were on the Gulf side, so there weren't a lot of waves and we weren't getting pushed everywhere. And so we're playing catch and all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I saw this giant dark spot in the water. And I'm just kind of like, okay. And I'm like, that might be just a huge, huge pile of seaweed. And so we continue to play, and about a split second later, I'm like, that seaweed is moving steadily in the direction of my son. And so I'm like, Joseph, get out of the water. And he kind of looks at me with a strange look on his face, and so I repeated myself, only this time loudly and with more urgency, Joseph get out of the water. And he's like, okay. And so we both start booking it and it was only like 10 yards and we were running through water so it didn't look fast. And by the time we got to the water's edge, the entire beach had stood up and come down to the edge because everyone else saw this giant dark spot in the water. And this guy leaves the beach and he's swimming out towards the giant dark spot because he's very confident in where he's gonna spend eternity and so he goes out there and we have no idea what it is and it shows its head and it's a killer whale just kidding it's not it's a manatee killer whales a much better story but it's just a manatee the friendliest creature in the ocean and of course i'm feeling like my heart is pounding and i'm like i just got scared of a manatee i'm like that's okay though i'm very tough You may not know that, but I'm very tough. And so it's just this amazing moment. And you know those moments where you feel like you have this foreboding sense of danger and it could happen imminently, right? And like your heart starts to race and maybe you get like a a big rush of adrenaline dumped into your body. Like if you ever had one of those experiences, we had one of those yesterday. We were driving to Hershey Park and this black Camaro cut in front of us and it was changing lanes and coming by this truck and like the truck didn't see him and like the truck moved over in the right lane and so the Camaro had to go to the shoulder and speed past. Past him and it was almost horrific and it just takes you a couple moments just to recover from that. And then this week we were at the Reading Phillies game and my son saw this foul ball go right past a woman's head, literally like an inch or two away and she was sitting in the front row just behind home plate, just where the net of the backstop wouldn't cover her and, it, and I just saw it in his eyes. He was just, whoa. You've had those moments, right? Whether it's with a manatee or in the car, or at the Reading Phillies games. No, yours are different, but you've had those, and you know what I'm talking about, those woe moments. And when we open up this parable that we're going to read today, all of Jesus' audience, though we won't feel it when we read it, that's what they were feeling. Woe, shocked, startled, an immediate sense of foreboding, like there's, just a, like there's something wrong here, things don't seem to be right. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, and we're going to read a parable together. If you're new with us today, we've been in a series about the parables of Jesus all throughout the summer. We'll wrap that up on August 30th, and then we'll start a brand new series on September 6th called Together, which we're going to talk about unity and our vision going forward. I'm excited about that series, so a couple more weeks of parables, and this parable is about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so this is what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, don't you just love the honesty of the Bible? Jesus told this parable. And just notice, Jesus didn't say it behind their backs. He said it right to their faces. I love this about Jesus. He doesn't go around and say, you know, I think so-and-so has a problem with self-righteousness. He just says, hey, self-righteous person, let me tell you a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. The Greek there, it should actually say prayed to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this in verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, uh, the point of the story is that You're after humility in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray for humility this morning for all of us. The humility to see where we're like Pharisees and we're not like tax collectors. The humility to see where self-righteousness is reigning in our lives. Lord, help us today. Lord, we need you. And I pray that you would do your work. Holy Spirit, come and just have your way and minister to all of us and speak to us, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. So let me talk to you about Pharisees and tax collectors for a minute. Maybe you've been in church for a while and you're like, oh, I know all about Pharisees and I know all about tax collectors. Well, for the rest of us who may not know all about Pharisees and tax collectors, uh, Pharisees in the Bible, specifically in the Gospels, they get a lot of bad publicity, right? I mean, because... Jesus is usually picking on the Pharisees in the Gospels, and those are his main opponents throughout the story of Jesus' life. And honestly, a good reason to get bad publicity is if Jesus is always picking on you, and eventually you kill him. So that's a good reason to get bad publicity, but let me give you an idea about who the Pharisees were. Pharisees were actually, in Jesus' day, the ultimate model of Judaism. They were deeply religious men. They were laymen. They weren't religiously employed. But they were a sect, and they were very devout. They were committed to strong moral behavior and tradition. They were extremely serious about obedience and living out the Old Testament laws. Like, honestly, if we just were to kind of Say to someone, Hey, is it a good thing to be deeply religious and to be deeply committed to strong moral character? Most of us would say, Yeah, it's a good thing to be very moral, it's a good thing to obey. They were also highly respected by the general public, and any Jewish mother would have loved to have their son be a Pharisee. We think being called a Pharisee is a terrible insult. But when Jesus told this story, everyone listening would have held them in a place of honor. So Jesus tells a parable about the guy who everyone in the culture thinks is the model of what it means to be godly. And then there's the tax collectors. I don't know what you think about tax collectors. Uh, Maybe if you have ever been audited before, you don't like tax collectors. But a lot of us, even in this room, we don't have deeply held disdain and hate for the IRS. Like most of us, if we saw someone at a party and they introduced themselves and they said, hello, my name is John, take your money, um, and I work for the IRS, you're not going to hate him. You might trip him as he walks by, but you don't hate him, right? Like you don't hate the IRS. But everybody listen to this story. They hated tax collectors. Let me tell you why. Tax collectors, the main issue with tax collectors was not that they collected taxes. It was because they were traitors. They were working for the Roman government. Rome was occupying Israel and they kind of had say about how much the Jews were supposed to pay in taxes. And so the Romans would hire Jewish citizens to collect taxes from their own. And so basically think about this, you see a fellow American citizen collecting taxes for let's just say we got invaded by Canada, that's never gonna happen so you're not scared. But and and like you're like, wait a minute, what are you doing, you're working for the enemy? That's not good. But here's the worst thing about tax collectors they would take more than Rome told them to take, so they were always very wealthy. It was legalized extortion. If Rome says, you owe $500 for taxes, the tax collector could say, you owe me $650. And he would pocket the $150 and give the $500 to Rome. And so when Jesus compares the tax collector and the Pharisee, just so we get the idea of how extreme and startling and surprising this parable is, I'm trying to think this week, okay, what's our modern day American vernacular of this story? And it's this, it's the story of the church elder and the American citizen turned ISIS fighter. So, you know, there's certain people in our country, a very small number, who are defecting from the United States and they're moving to the Middle East and they're going to fight for ISIS. That's happening in our day and age. And so just imagine that Jesus told a story about a church elder and this traitor. That's what the shock factor is supposed to feel feel like. And here's what's clear in the parable. Jesus makes the good guy the bad guy and the bad guy the good guy. And let's be honest, none of us want to be the bad guy. If we spent any time in church, we know we don't want to be labeled a Pharisee. Can we safely conclude Jesus isn't confronting any issues in your heart or my heart because, frankly, we're not bad guys or girls. We think of ourselves as good and we want to be moral and upright and upstanding and we're like, no, 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 this parable can't possibly be about me and my life. So, who does Jesus tell this parable to? To some who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. What does it mean to be righteous? What are we talking about today when we talked about people who are confident in their own righteousness? Righteousness is like your report card with God. Like when you think that you're doing well with God, you give yourself an A. I had my quiet time seven times this week. I prayed for 15 minutes. I'm reading the one year Bible. I didn't, I didn't, uh, get stuck in Leviticus, I'm doing well, I'm tithing, I'm nice to people, I'm not losing my temper, oh my goodness, I am actually doing really well as a Christian. God, here's my report card, Batten, maybe not a thousand Lord, but maybe 900 this week, like I'm doing well. Your righteousness is your own sense of goodness. Righteousness is the sense you have that, that you're meeting God's standard. That's what righteousness is, to meet God's standard. So the natural question this parable asks us to be honest about is, am I confident in my own righteousness? In the depth of who you are, is there a Pharisee living within? So I'm just going to tell you today, you're going to need a brutal amount of self-awareness and honesty. And I'll help you. I'm going to make you feel guilty today because that's what you pay me to do. But then I'm going to give you all kinds of hope. So just... Wait till the end. You're going to feel a little bit bad, and then you're going to be like, okay, Joe, where's the gospel? We'll get there. So let's ask how to know if you're a Pharisee. You didn't want to come to church today and figure that out, but today we're going to discover together how to know if you're a Pharisee. Here's the first thing, if you're a Pharisee. You find comfort in comparison. Look at what the Pharisee did. He stood up and prayed about himself or to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Let's be real, okay? You're you're like, this is not me. Why are you saying this? Because most of us don't have the kind of hubris to actually pray these things out loud in a public setting. And we probably don't even pray this way in private. We're not saying, God, God, you you must be so blessed to have me. Lord, I'm so thankful I'm not a liberal or a Cowboys fan or have hair like Donald Trump. God, like, thank you. Thank you, God, that you are so blessed to have me. Thank you, God, that I'm not failing like this person is failing. Like, we don't pray that way. And yet, that's not the main issue. The issue isn't that he's praying so pompously. No Pharisee believes that he's sinless. The Pharisee isn't saying, I'm perfect, and evildoers and robbers are not. What he's doing is comparing himself to sinners he perceives worse than himself. He is building his confidence in his own righteousness as he sees it missing in the lives of others. He goes, God, they're failing, I'm getting an A. That's what self righteous people do. They compare themselves to others and then console themselves when they see the people they're comparing themselves to aren't really all that righteous at all. And compared to thieves, adulterers, and tax collectors, the Pharisee looks pretty righteous. And what if we were honest today about all the ways we tend to compare ourselves to help us boost our own sense of righteousness, our own sense of goodness? When does your inner Pharisee emerge? What gives you a sense of rightness in your soul? How often you attend church? How much you tithe? How faithfully you serve? How hard you work? How much you pray? How much you know about the Bible? How your kids turned out? How you're raising your family? How open-minded you are? How you're not a hypocrite? How organized you are? How straight you are? how right you are about politics, how smart you are, how in shape you are, how pretty you are, how clean your house is, how loyal you are, how well you manage your money, how you don't drink or smoke or date girls who do. Like, you understand, like, we have all these different ways where we're, we're saying, this is who I am. I am not that. And so, think about in your own life, think about all the ways you find a sense of self and identity in things that make you feel better than other people. When you see someone who's fat, do you say, Thank God I'm skinny? When you see someone who's in a financial crisis, do you say, Thank God I know how to take care of my money? When you see someone struggling with same-sex attraction, do you think, oh, man, they just don't get it. If they would just only change, thank God that I'm moral. When you see someone who has kids who are, or who has kids who are prodigals and they're running from God, do you say, if they only would have made different decisions with their kids like we did... Or maybe you're an education Pharisee, like you think, oh my goodness, you know, the only real way, if you're really going to love your kids and you're really going to educate them the right way, you're going to homeschool them, or you're going to send them to Christian school, or you're going to send them to public school like, like we do. Like, we love to find those areas of life where we're assessing our own life and we're looking at someone else's and we're saying, thank God I'm not like that. And here's the wicked thing that happens. We begin to build a sense of righteousness on those things. Like, we know we need Jesus, but we're saying, God, I need you, but thank God this isn't missing in my life. And it's not really loving, and it's not really about being grateful to God. It's about pride. It's arrogance. It's where you're finding your righteousness. Confidence in your own righteousness isn't about believing you're perfect. It's about believing the lie that there is even a whiff of righteousness in you that makes you acceptable to God and better than others. How do you know if you're a Pharisee? You comfort yourself with comparisons. Here's the second thing. You think you're doing your part. You think you're doing your part. The Pharisee says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So let me explain to you how Pharisees viewed grace. Sometimes preachers say Pharisees had no sense of understanding what the grace of God is. And the truth is, Pharisees believed in the grace of God. But here's how they thought God's grace worked. They thought that they had some righteousness within themselves and that God fills in the gap between where their righteousness is missing and what he requires. So they really believed with God that they did their part and God did his part. And so when the Pharisee says, I fast and I tithe, what he's saying is, God, I've done my part. Now, Lord, you need to be faithful to do your part. Pharisees think that somehow they are contributing to their own righteousness. Maybe some of us believe that too, that we have to do our part, that Christianity is letting God fill in the gaps where we fail to measure up. Some of us think that our righteousness is about a quarter or half full, and we come to God and we say things like, God, I'm not that bad. God, I'm pretty good, but I have this missing in this area of my life, so God, I need, you. I need grace there. And that's what the Pharisee is doing. God, I fast and I tithe, and where things are missing, you know, I, I need you there, I guess. But I don't need you ne- nearly as much as this tax collector needs you. I love what Isaiah says in, verse, in chapter 64, verse 6. He talks about this when it comes to feeling like our righteousness is impressive to God. He says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Isaiah is very clear. When we come to God thinking that we have some kind of righteousness to offer him, God looks at that righteousness and he says, that's disgusting to me. Jesus is certainly not against tithing and fasting, but he, but he is against even the smallest hint of self-righteousness in those deeds. He is not against effort, but he is disgusted by our attempts to earn our righteousness. Jesus is warning us that our acts of devotion to him can quickly become a source of spiritual pride. If we only think we need a cupful of grace and not an ocean of grace, we aren't ready for grace. You might be a Pharisee if you think you're impressing God with your life. You might be a Pharisee if you think your life is more impressive to God than someone else's because you see greater sin in their life than you do in your own. So are you a Pharisee? I mean, I, uh, let's be painfully honest. A lot of those examples that I gave, some of them are from my own life. It is easy to have a sense of self-worth derived by acts of devotion. It's easy to believe that God is impressed by it. And we'll quickly see that Jesus tells us it's not impressive at all. In verse 13, it says, but the the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. That's a sign of deep humility. Actually, uh, one thing I read this week is that only women would do that. Only women would do that when they pray, and if a man did that, it was a sign that he was deeply contrite. But beat on his breast and said, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus tells us the point of the parable is that those who exalt themselves before God, God, look how righteous I am. Look what I'm doing for you. Look how consistent I am. Look how I'm not like that. Those who exalt themselves before God will experience a humbling at God's hand. And those who humble themselves before God will be exalted by God. The Pharisee is the one who has exalted himself and the, the tax collector has humbled himself. It's the tax collector who goes home justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means in this story that the tax collector is the one who, who God set about You are righteous. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. And so this should mess with our heads. Why is the faster and the tither and the person who's not robbing and not committing adultery not justified? And the tax collector, the American citizen turned ISIS fighter who betrayed his country, who does wicked and evil things. How can that person go home justified? How can God say to them, You are righteous. And to the Pharisee, he can say, nothing, nothing. It's humility. It's humility. Humility is the secret to destroying self-righteousness. But we have to be careful about what we mean by humility, because I'm not saying that virtue can make you righteous before God. In the tax collector's prayer, we see what it really means to be humble. So we're going to answer the question, what is real humility? And the tax collector simply says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The word mercy used here is not the typical word for mercy that the New Testament uses. This tax collector is not just asking, God, be nice to me. God, show me your kindness. The term the tax collector used speaks to a piece of furniture that was found in the temple. The temple was the place of worship for the Israelites. And in this room in the temple where the high priest would only go once per year, a room called the Holy of Holies was this piece of furniture called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant And when he's asking for mercy, he's alluding that what happened on the mercy seat, he needs. So you're like, well, what happened on the mercy seat? Once per year on the most holy day in the Jewish calendar, the great high priest would stand up and he would have two goats and what he would do is he would confess the sins of the people onto one goat and he would send him into the wilderness and then he would take the other goat and he would slaughter that goat for the sin of all the people and on the day of atonement he would walk into the holy of holies after making a lot of sacrifices and cleansing himself, uh, doing all these things, he would take some of the blood of this goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat on the day of atonement and on the day of atonement when that blood was splattered on the mercy seat God would then, for an entire year, consider the sins of Israel forgiven, and they could be reconciled to God through that act. And what the tax collector is asking for is, I need the mercy seat. The tax collector knows that his sin must be dealt with. He knows that he has no righteousness as he stands before God. The mercy he is asking for is the mercy of someone else's death besides his own. Blood must be splattered on the mercy seat for the sin of this tax collector. And the tax collector's prayer is essentially, God, there is nothing righteous about me. My sins are not small. They just can't be swept under the rug. God, I need the kind of mercy that will make me clean. I need atonement. The actual word in Greek is propitiation. You know what that means? He needs the wrath of God satisfied for his sin. And he knows only the death of a perfect lamb will satisfy it. What is real humility? Humility is believing that your sin demands death. So catch what's happening at this moment in the Gospels. At this moment in Jesus' life, he is only a couple weeks away from going to the cross. And what the tax collector was asking for, atonement for sin, Jesus would accomplish. And on the cross, Jesus Christ gave his life for your sin and my sin and the sins of the world. Jesus accepted our punishment. Jesus absorbed God's wrath. Figuratively speaking, Jesus' blood needed to be sprinkled on the mercy seat so that atonement and reconciliation could be possible for all human beings. And through the death of Jesus, righteousness becomes possible. Let me read this scripture to you this morning. It explains beautifully the ministry of Jesus, the life and the death of Jesus for our sin. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 says this, but now apart from the law, so the Pharisee trying to be righteous through the law couldn't do it, but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been made known. So what does that mean? It means that No one was able to perfectly keep God's standard, even if they fasted and tithed and didn't rob and didn't steal. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, meaning it was always going to be this way. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Not works, not fasting and tithing, That will not earn the righteousness of God in your life. It's only through faith. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified. All are declared not guilty. Acquitted in the courtroom of God freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or in the original language a propitiation that Jesus Christ satisfies the wrath of God on the cross through the shedding of his blood. So just like on the day of atonement the high priest would walk in and splatter the blood on the mercy seat because that sacrifice would mean the atonement for sin on the cross Jesus Christ, once and for all, the shedding of his blood meant atonement for sin to be received received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. I love that scripture. Here's what it's saying. God was so Patient, refusing to punish sin, waiting to punish sin until he would punish his son. You shouldn't walk around wondering if God loves you. He was patient enough to leave sin unpunished and waited for the perfect lamb, which would be his one and only begotten son. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, meaning... That God couldn't just be like, I forgive you, who cares? He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just, God is just. He does not turn a blind eye to evil and sin. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, catch what Paul is saying in Romans 3 God is both just and justifier. Meaning, his justice demands that sin be paid for with blood, and at the same time, he also provides the way for you to be righteous. So God is saying, I'm not going to set aside my holiness. I'm not going to just say, oh, your sin is no problem at all. Because why? He's just. But he also provides the way for you to be declared not guilty. Some of us have a hard time with the concept of believing that sin demands death. I want to read this quote by a guy named R.C. Sproul. I think it describes really well why our sin demands death. He says this, there's no such thing as cheap grace. The gospel is not simply an announcement of pardon. In justification, God does not merely decide unilaterally to forgive us our sins. That is the prevailing idea, that what happens in the gospel is that God freely forgives us of sin because he is such a loving, dear, wonderful God, kind of like Barney. And it does not disturb him. That we violate everything that is holy. God never negotiates his righteousness. God will never lay aside his holiness to save us. God demands and requires that sin be punished. That is why the cross is the universal symbol of Christianity. Christ had to die because, according to God, the propitiation had to be made. Sin had to be punished. In the drama of justification, God remains just. He does not set aside His justice. He does not waive His righteousness. He insists upon it. We cannot be justified without righteousness. But the glory of His grace is that His justice is served vicariously by a substitute that He appointed. God's mercy is shown in that what saves us is not our own righteousness. it is someone else's and I love this line we get in on someone else's coattails." Thanks, Andrew. That was a good place for that. We get in on someone else's coattails. That is grace. That is grace. What is humility? Humility is believing. Righteousness is a gift. It's a gift. Paid for in the blood of Jesus. Do you want to leave here like the tax collector who was made right before God? Do you want to stop being a Pharisee? Then you must choose to stand only on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. You don't have a part in your own righteousness. You can't hold up your end of the deal. You're not doing your part. You can't do your part. Stop trying to do your part. Live for God? Absolutely. Trying to earn something from him, impress him with your life? Disgusting to God. What should you do instead? Receive the righteousness that is found in faith in Jesus Christ alone. You have no righteousness. And who is this parable to? Lost people? No. People who think they're found. People who think that there's something about them that is pleasing to God that is not rooted completely in Jesus Christ. Jesus is your righteousness. Only because Jesus plus anything ruins everything. So what are you standing on today? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The secret to killing the Pharisee in you. What will absolutely stop all of the comparing? What will help you to be a better wife, husband, friend, employee, parent, church member, citizen, human being? This sermon is about all of that. If you want to be more loving, more caring, if you want to be less judgmental and stop looking down your nose at what's wrong with the world, if you want your heart to grow big and fleshy and loving and stop getting angry at everyone else's sin, you realize you have nothing to stand on but the righteousness of Jesus Christ and all is a gift. That is the Gospel. Jesus Christ Was brutally murdered because you are wicked. And in that death, wrath was satisfied. And now we are not left to our own devices to stand on our own righteousness, but we stake all of our life in the righteousness of Jesus. And we don't stand on anything else but that. That should destroy pride, that should destroy despair. That should destroy worry and anxiety and wondering if you're good enough. That should make you, when you fail, say, God, even if I succeeded, I wasn't going to be righteous anyway in my own strength. This is not a license to sin. It's an invitation to live free. It's an invitation to live in a way that is so incredibly loving and generous and sweet because Jesus has done all the work. And so when you're standing in the temple to pray, you just look around and you can say with the congregation, God, have mercy on us, all sinners. No matter what our sin is, God, no matter what that sin looks like, God, we are desperate for the mercy seat. We are thankful for the blood of Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the good news. And this is what we exist to do as a church, to get the good news out, so that people that you know and that you work with can experience Righteousness, not in changing their behavior but in coming to Jesus Christ and finding new righteousness. We have the greatest, most beautiful, joyous mes- message in all the world. And this is what we're called to do. Be His witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit right where we are, telling the world, there is a righteousness that is not your own that is available for you. So how do we close today? First is this, Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. I wanna ask you today, is your faith in Jesus Christ or do you think you are righteous? Today is a day to give your life to Jesus Christ. And I wanna ask you to do that today. So I'm gonna ask if we would just for a moment, just out of respect for everyone in the room, just settle in our seats and bow our heads. And I just wanna ask you today, do you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, Just let me know by raising your hand saying, yes, I need Christ. I see a few of you. Anyone else? Thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. You know you need a righteousness that is not your own. Four or five of you today. For those four or five who put their hands up, if you could just join me in prayer. You can stay right in your seats. Just pray this with me and for the rest of us, let's just pray together as a church. Remind our souls of our need. Let's pray, God, I need your righteousness. I don't have any. God, I need forgiveness. I need to be made new. I failed more times than I can remember. But God, today I'm saying that I want the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God, I don't want you to relate to me based on how I perform. I only want you to relate to me because of what Christ has done for me. My faith is in him. Jesus, lead me I want to follow you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. For those few who made a decision to follow Jesus, when we're done here in just a moment, I'm going to invite our prayer partners to come forward. And I want you to just get out of your seat at the end of service and come forward and there'll be someone standing here who will just... You just want to say, hey, today I decided to say yes to Jesus. And they want to pray with you and encourage you. And uh, we have some Bibles that we'll get if you need a Bible. And we just want to help you get started on your journey. And today is an awesome day to say yes to the Lord. And For those of us who are following Jesus and we're building our life on His righteousness and nothing else, here's the second thing we should do today. Stay humble. Stay humble. That's what we should do. We should stay so humble as people. Nothing should puff us up with pride. We shouldn't be judging and looking at the world and saying, my goodness, how much better I am than them. We shouldn't even be looking at our Christian friends saying, Oh, they struggle with that. That's a huge problem. I think we should challenge each other. I think we should speak the truth in love. I think we should not close our eyes to the sin we see our friends and brothers and sisters dealing with, but we should do all of it with an attitude of humility, inviting them to the cross, inviting them to the new way that Jesus invites us to live, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be righteous only by Christ's power. We need Him. Let's be humble as a church. We need Him. Let's be humble as parents. We need Him. Let's be humble as spouses. We need Him. Let's be humble as siblings. We need Him. Let's be humble as friends. We need Him. Only stand on Jesus. I'm going to invite our prayer partners to come forward after I say amen. If you need prayer for any reason today, you're going through something difficult, you know you need God, be ministered to this morning through our prayer partners. When I say amen, you're dismissed. And uh, have a great week. And only stand on Jesus. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that today is a great day. Lord, we have so much to be grateful for. Lord, you are so good to us, better than we deserve. God, thank you. Thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you that when we look within, we might find a couple of good things about ourselves, but when it comes to being righteous, only Jesus. Help us to remember that as we interact with others this week, how we think about others throughout the week, how we think about ourselves, and how we think about you, God. Thanks that you relate to us by the righteousness of Jesus only. We choose to stand on it. In your awesome and good and kind and mighty name, We pray, amen, amen.